Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Everyone uh, recoup after the World Cup and the finishing, perhaps for many, would be disappointing at the climate. Guys, yeah, second's good for England. Second's good for England. Fourth is great for Wales. And you have to, I guess, you, if you put it out proportionally per population, it is quite an incredible achievement. I can't say anything because America got toasted in every, uh, every attempt during the World Cup, but there, there you have it. Um, so this morning we're going to look at a, a concept, I'm not sure if we've got Seeking the Knowledge of God, um, and I thought before we kind of unpack uh, this, we'll give some definition, some context to what we're going to be talking about, uh, why we're going to be talking about it why I believe it's really important for us to grapple uh, with, these, with these concepts. But even more so, uh, I think when we grapple with concepts, if we don't apply these concepts, then at the end of the day, uh, it actually is, is a waste of time. And so I thought we, I kind of start off, we had a few, few clips, but a few glitches with uh, the link I shared. So I'm going to improvise a little bit. And so as part of that improvisation this morning, I thought I would take you back to a high school uh, period of time for myself. Um, as Mike said, I grew up in Texas. Obviously, in Texas, for those who have ever visited the U.S. or even visited the state, uh, the sport there is not rugby. It is very much uh, football, but American football. Very quick fact about why the name football exists. Are you ready? Because a lot of people think, why do they call it football? They hardly ever use their feet. In fact, football is more associated with, you know, as I would term, soccer. Okay, here's the fact. The reason why in America you call it football has nothing to do with the way you play it. It's the length of the ball. The length of the ball is 12 inches, a foot. There we go. Bang. If, any, if you leave today, you know you've come away wiser. So, anyway... Nevertheless, so I played football. I loved it. Uh, I was able to play throughout high school, a bit in college. I coached. Um, it's something that I, I really enjoy. Well, the center, which is the guy who is in the middle, and he's the big guy, typically the tall guy, and his responsibility is to line up on the line, get the football. He gets down like this. And he hikes the ball, and he ex in that hike, he exchanges it typically back to the quarterback. Okay? These guys tend to be quite massive. In fact, in university, I look like a hobbit compared to uh, my center. He was about six foot seven, 320 pounds. I mean, an absolute giant of a man. But the center in high school was not that big, although his head definitely would have fit much better on a six foot seven, 320 pound guy. I mean, his, proportionally speaking, he had a big head. And then if you put a helmet on top of that big head, it's even like kind of more pronounced. So there he is, our center, hiking the ball. Now you can, in football, throw passes and you can make different members of your team eligible to catch the ball. Okay, so our center, he was an eligible member to catch the ball in this certain play. Now the problem 
with our center is, as I mentioned, he had quite a large head. And when you look at a football field, it's very meticulous in terms of how you run a pass and the type of pass based on the defense that is before you. So when you have a play, which you call in the huddle, and you expect as a quarterback for that person to be in that place at that time based on that coverage, you have an idea where you should be throwing the ball and the time you should be throwing the ball before you actually ever get the you actually ever receive the football in your hand as a quarterback. Well, the issue with Chris is because his head was quite big. Um, he would run, but I think personally, because of the size of his head and he would run, it would actually take him off course. <laughs> and so where he should be running, you know, a straight line and then going right, he'd be kind of be running this way and then kind of do this. And so he would actually be in a completely different spot on the field to where he should have been. Why am I saying this? Because <laughs> I'm picking on my friend Chris. No. Um, I'm saying this because at times knowledge unapplied can be like our head as Christians, spiritual beings, become quite big and takes us off course. Takes us in as opposed to our compass being on the straight and narrow, pointing north, it kind of points west or really awfully southwest. or it, it takes it off because we become quite large and we're trying to run our, our, life, our you know, path of life and slowly but surely we're getting off course. And so when we're looking at seeking the knowledge of God, as we're looking at applying the knowledge of God, we also need to look at, well, what is knowledge? Some people, in terms of the dictionary, would determine knowledge as skills, thoughts, ideas, learnt through experience or education. And so there's almost this ability to acquire knowledge at an arm's length. We can almost... You know, through our study, through our experience, through our, our life base, we acquire information. And we say, oh yeah, I have a lot of knowledge about this topic. And that's how we describe and we depict knowledge. But if you look at biblical knowledge, if you get in touch with how knowledge was actually exchanged biblically, it's something very, very different. Knowledge is not in an arm's length. In the Bible, knowledge is an intertwining between the knowing and the application of that knowing of that person, of that skill, of that profession, and then practically walking that out. So we're looking at the knowledge of God. If we're looking at what it means to seek the knowledge of God, it's not that we're doing something with an arm's length. It's actually something very intertwined. And if you actually dig into more and more of a biblical text, when you're looking at knowledge, it's on the verge of something even more covenantal. An expression almost as you would only utilize between a husband and wife relationship. That's how God begins to depict this intertwining, this connectedness. It's such an amazing oneness and unity that we can't distinguish between knowing God and the knowledge of God. 
Because at times we want to distinguish those two. So when we're looking at knowledge, knowledge cannot be discussed without the knowing. And so in other ways, in other ways, as we get into this whole topic this morning, we have to realize that if we are going to, biblically speaking now, okay, not academically, but biblically speaking, if we are going to grab hold of knowledge, we have to place ourselves in a position of fully knowing God. So a quick show of hands, I want you to think about this, who here can be known? Who can be known? Okay? Yep. Hopefully all of us. Yes. So we can all be known, right? So now I want you to think to yourself, you don't have to say it out loud, but think to yourself, well, who can you be known by? Who can know you? All right. So kind of think about that a bit. And I'm going to bring that right back up kind of in, in a few minutes, but I want you to think about who can I be known by? All right? Because it's important as we unpack this morning. When we look at uh, a limited knowledge, yeah, at the end of the day, it will lack confidence in life. It will lack confidence with, in relationship with others. It will lack confidence in our own being. And it will also, at the end of the day, lack confidence in us knowing God. So when we have a knowledge base, yeah, that is limited there is going to also be a very quick ceiling on the confidence that we can express through that. So when we are beginning with this whole concept of seeking after the knowledge of God and getting to know God, I want to look at something here in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 4. And it's the first uh, bit of scripture I want to look at. And this is um, during the time of David. And it says, He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol Thank and praise the Lord. That word extol is also a word that you can probably put in place of that. It's called to invoke. The actual Hebrew of that extol, invoke, is this word zakar. Zakar can be best termed as an ability to call to remembrance, to maneuver yourself, to ensure that you are continuously speaking, talking about something, celebrating something, it's a forceful action that you tell, regardless of your circumstances, that you tell your mind to engage with. There was a Levitical call in the time of David that he was actually commissioning the Levites to once again take the rightful place. To ensure a nation could know how to go about life and all the practicalities and all the dynamics of things to ensure that there is a godly representation of those things in the time of great chaos across nations. Because so we have to remember, in those times, you have Israel and you have a lot of nations, even today, you have a lot of nations that did not like them. And there wasn't the, you know, UN resolutions. There wasn't war crimes that could have brought to an international war council. None of that existed. There was deep hatred across the board in that area. And it was applied in that way. But there was a commissioning for these group of people, the Levites, to represent based on the knowledge of God, to do what is right, and to show how we do what is right in all frameworks of society. 
Not just in the worshiping and the sacrifice. From education to health care to entertainment, the whole shebang they were responsible for. Now, that was the Levitical call. There was a lot of other people throughout the Old Testament, such as Nehemiah. Nehemiah was commissioned to build the wall. Ezra, he was commissioned to go back as a scribe and teach the law of God and re invigorate the law of God across all society. David, the King David, who was in charge of establishing a kingdom. Esther, who was responsible to have a sense of courage and humility to save an entire nation. You have people across history in the Old Testament that were called and commissioned to do something in terms of application and knowledge of God. Now, that is our role as the church. We are called and commissioned by God to have a godly representation of the knowledge of God in all spheres of society and all aspects of what we are called to do. So in my workplace on the Monday through Friday, I have a calling and I have a purpose to represent the character of God the knowledge of God, and how I conduct myself, how I make my decisions, and how I relate. That is a mandate and a responsibility that God has. And as much of a mandate and responsibility as it upon me, that is upon us. But it's up to myself and us to choose whether or not I'm going to engage in that and apply that. We live in a society that is very individualistic, which means that in terms of accountability, it's not really, really there as it once was in terms of the expression. I could, if I wanted to, if I wanted to, I could go to work and fully disengage and compartmentalize, let's say Sunday Joe to Monday through Friday Joe. I could. I could do that. But it's up to me and my responsibility and my accountability that I don't compartmentalize. I need to be the person that I am in public as I am in private, as I am on Sunday, as I am through Monday to Friday. And we have people, hopefully, in our lives that we invite to examine and to hold us accountable to ensure that we're applying the biblical text in terms of knowledge of God. And it's so, so important. So when we're looking at this whole thing of zakar, this invoking, this extolling, there is a sense of deep certainty that can come through that. It doesn't have to be all kind of, you know, fireworks and light show. It can be a deep sense of certainty, a calmness, a peace, that when troubles come and difficulties come, which they will do, but as they come, we have this sense of of peace, a sense of certainty that God is faithful, that He is good, and that the things which He has done before, He will do again. When our earth shakes and things begin to unravel, we don't look at the circumstances. We go back and we zakar, we invoke, we extol, we remember that God and who He says He is is true yesterday as it is today. That's the difference between Christians, people who are applying the words of God, versus those who do not. It's not the application of ideas. It's the application of an invigorating relationship that we can respond to and have a deep burning sense of passion 
to belong to. And then the beautiful thing about it all is, is that it's not limited between myself and God. All of a sudden, there's an invitation to a community, which is what we call a Sunday service church. There's an invitation to engage with a community. Mike was saying this this morning. We have a chance, regardless of our environment, to make a response to God. But it's up to me. It's up to you. We do that together. All of a sudden, we move forward. And it's amazing when we decide to do that. But I have to choose for myself. You have to choose for you. And as we continue to derive at correct conclusions and we make those positive choices to respond to Jesus, you're not responding to Mike. You're not responding to anyone on the stage. You're not responding to, to the music. You're responding to Jesus. And as we do that, the expression of his presence occurs, which is amazing. And incredible. And that can happen between me and God in my quiet times in the morning. That can happen between you and your times with God in the car. Can happen with us as we gather. But we are mandated and a sense of responsibility that we have the moments of zakar. We invoke, we extol the ways of God and the knowledge of God in this present time and day. That even when we're having a good day, zakar means that we take that good day and we write it down. We inscribe. So that when we're having a bad day, we go back and we look at what we wrote and we say, this is true. God is good. This is who God is. Therefore, I'm going to apply this reality in terms of who God is and I'm going to apply that in this moment. And I'm going to do zakar. It's a moment of zakar. It's a moment of invoking the knowledge of God and who God is in the past and applying it into the present. And what happens in those moments is we begin to shift in our hearts. And God takes us deeper. And as we go deeper, we can go further. But we don't want to go further without going deeper. I want to illustrate that through a, just a, a story. It's a story that's very close to, to Jules and I, a very story that's close to me. Our son, Ethan, he, he was born with some complications. In, in the first 24 hours, we weren't certain if he was going to live or not, and he had to have emergency operations. Um, and we had to go away in terms of the room that the hospital put us up on in Australia and they said, look, they're going, he's going for emergency operation. You have to sign all the consent forms. And I remember Jules and I going back to the room. Jules actually doesn't. We've spoken about this a few times. And Jules doesn't remember this because it was a very traumatic moment. But I remember us putting, getting the laptop that we had, my little G4 Apple laptop. For those who are Apple users, a little G4 little thing, a little box. Anyway, open it up. We put on a song. And... Um, we began to engage in a time of worship and just a traumatic expression of emotions. Um, and I remember in that moment that there was this chance to say, God, why is this happening? Give this issue to us as parents. Take it away from this innocent, helpless child. But it was impossible to do that. It was Ethan's 
journey to engage with. And for us as parents, it was our journey to actually say, I release control and I say whatever happens, because we did not know, whatever happens, God, let not an accusation of our mouth come to you. And in that moment, and it was a moment, I felt the depth of God just go down levels. Boom! And that was everything to do with who God is and the access that he gave us in that time to engage in his presence, which brought assurances to our heart regardless of what those outcomes were going to be. There was an assurance in our spirit that regardless of what was going to happen, the goodness of God was not going to be shook. Jesus remained on the throne. He didn't fall off the throne. His foot didn't become a bit, a bit nervous and start kind of jittering around. His hands didn't begin to shake. Sweat did not fall from his brow because he was uncertain of what was going on. No, Jesus was very much firmly upon the throne. And the goodness of God was as firm in that place in that time as, as it ever have been. And there was an opportunity to go deep. God gives us opportunities to go deep in, into knowing him, which allows for the expression of the biblical knowledge of God to be applied into our lives. We have a moment of zakar that occurs regularly, church. And that is not an opportunity that we should seek to push away. It's an opportunity we have to embrace. Because when we embrace these moments, the depth of the knowledge of God allows it to be established into His goodness that He becomes to be the person in the spotlight so that when the success, when the outcome occurs, we go back and we said, of all the stuff that was happening we registered in terms of the goodness of God, which all of a sudden what that happens is for all those who are watching, who believe God, who do not believe in God, we go back and we say, no, 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 it's because of who he is, which brings others into an opportunity of relationship and knowledge of God. Knowledge of God is never meant to be isolating, an isolated thing, never. There's moments of solitude that occur, but it's never, ever meant to be isolated. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 14 through 24, if, that, if we can. This is Paul. And Paul's kind of describing a bit of the beginnings of his ministry and his time. It says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter, and stay with him 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles. Where am I here? Only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria. And are we, let's see, I think we skipped. Can I go to verse 14? Do we have verse 14 there? I think, that, do you have that? I'll, I'll just read, okay, I'll read that. Okay, and I was advancing in Judaism. This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 14 through 24. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and was called by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned into Damascus. 
Then verse 18, which is up on the uh, screen there. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing, and it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Knowledge of God will always ultimately make room for others. There will be times where we retract in solitude. When I first became a Christian, I was 22 years old. Amazingly, it was in a biochemistry class, which you probably don't get that a lot. But that was my moment of conversion. Um, Or I should say that's my moment of realization, more so as an adult. Um, But for those six months between February to October of 2004, uh, there was change, for sure. Not heaps amount of change, but there was definite change that occurred. Um, And then I engaged unknowingly, (laughs) funny enough, uh, engaged unknowingly and went to a mission organization. I had no idea I was going to a mission organization when I went, which is hilarious. Actually, this is how slow I am. Um, It wasn't until I was there for four weeks, four weeks, sitting in a class and learning about God, where the person who was teaching uh, lectures, they said, you're in a mission organization. I thought, what? I'm in a mission organization? (laughs) What am I doing here? You know, four weeks. Uh, That says a lot about me. I had no idea what was going on, which probably is more to do with a lot of the grace of God, because I don't think I probably would have gone otherwise. Nevertheless, that's what happened. And, um, but there were times where there were moments of great solitude when I first began to be encountered by God. But through that, it enabled me to have relationship with others. And that's one of the most amazing things about growing in knowledge of God. It will always lead us into a deeper relationship with other people. It will not lead us into isolation. It will not lead us into ways where we become disengaged. It will lead us, at the end of the day, into relationship and expression to others. Because as much as God wants to do internally to us, at the end of the day, there will be further expression and impact across the board. And impact comes as we relate. That's what happens. That's what occurs. Jesus retreated in solitude. But he always reengaged on, in relationally with others so that other people could come into a knowledge and awareness of God. So there are times, like Paul where he retreated for a period of time. There are times like Jesus that he retreats for a period of time. I retreat. Other people will retreat in solitude, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's important. But at the end of the day, the application of knowledge of God will lead us to impact other people. It will remove and push back isolation. So when people are coming into a knowledge of God and our understanding of knowledge of God continues to be expressed more and more, At the end of the day, there's application points, but those application points happen relationally. It doesn't mean that we become more knowledgeable and we become more powerful. That's the wrong paradigm. 
we become more knowledgeable, we become more relational. That's the paradigm of the God of the Bible. He, do, he doesn't become more knowledgeable to be more powerful. Jesus in Luke 4, the major thing, if you look, if you stand back and you read Luke 4, which is the temptation of Jesus, if you actually take a step back and, and look at the universal picture of what's happening there before you get into the particulars, what you find is, is that there was a war between Jesus having to choose between his humanity and his divinity. That's what was occurring, if you actually look at it. Jesus had this opportunity to say, okay, no, no, I'm going to remain in terms of my expression of divinity across planet Earth and do whatever I want to do in terms of power, or I can embrace my humanity as I walk planet Earth and embrace relationally. Jesus chose his humanity over his divinity.